Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. At the top of the show, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that I've begun uploading bonus content to Patreon. For the price of $5 a month, you can gain access to new posts, as well as the backlog of previous ones. This past month's bonus episode was an interview I conducted with Professor Ronan Steinberg on the topics of restorative justice and historical trauma. It was a very enlightening interview for me, and I'm sure it will be for the rest of you as well. If you're interested in supporting the show financially and listening to this extra content, the link to the Patreon page will be in this episode's description. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's begin. In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we witnessed the meteoric rise of Toussaint Louverture. Although born a slave, Toussaint was a free man when he decided to join the slave revolt that broke out in northern Saint-Domingue in August 1791. Initially, Toussaint served as a commander under the insurgent general Georges Biassou, and as such he fought for the Spanish for a time, before defecting to the French Republicans upon learning that the French National Convention had formally abolished slavery in early 1794. Toussaint turned on his former comrades in arms and defeated them handily, reclaiming the northern province of Saint-Domingue for the French Republic. From then on, Toussaint was the Republic's most loyal soldier. He formed a close working relationship with Saint-Domingue's governor, Étienne Laveau. While Laveau managed affairs from the city of Le Cap, Toussaint was his man in the field, commanding the military, rebuilding the devastated colony, and reporting his every action to his superior. However, Toussaint's intimate relationship with Governor Laveau did not stop him in his mission to consolidate his power in Saint-Domingue, and when he saw an opportunity to usher his dear friend from the political stage, he took it. Elections were held to determine who would represent Saint-Domingue in France's new legislative body, the Council of 500. Toussaint proposed that one of these men should be Laveau, as the ex-slaves of Saint-Domingue could ask for no better defender in the halls of power than Laveau. Laveau, who himself was weary after having spent four years in the devastated, war-torn colony, jumped at the opportunity. For his part, Laveau never suspected Toussaint of harboring any hidden motives, and the two remained close friends even well after his departure. With Laveau out of the picture, Toussaint now only had to contend with Commissioner Santhanax. Laguerre Felicité Santhanax was one of the commissioners sent over by the French government in 1792 to enforce the new laws mandating racial equality. Despite having no mandate to do so, he was the one who ended up abolishing slavery in Saint-Domingue in August 1793. He was recalled back to the mainland shortly after, but returned in May 1796. He immediately set about finishing the work that he had started three years ago. He pursued an unabashedly pro-black political program. He sought to improve the lives of laborers on the plantations, and he established schools where ex-slaves of all ages could receive the education that they had been denied under the old regime. All the while, he made a concerted effort to marginalize the white and mixed-race population of the colony. Yet, for all his pro-blackness, Toussaint remained weary of Santanax's motives. He suspected, or at least accused, Santanax of plotting to declare independence from France and to massacre the colony's remaining white population in the process. Toussaint most certainly did not want either of these things to happen. He was still fully committed to France, as well as to the idea that all races of Saint-Domingue could live together in peace and prosperity. Fortunately for Toussaint, he had the perfect pretext to remove Santanax from the political scene. 
Santanax had been elected as a representative some time ago, but he was so popular in the colony that he had been persuaded to stay. Now, Toussaint insisted that Santanax return to France to take his seat in the legislature. Santanax made no complaint and scuppered off back to France in August 1797. Whether Santanax actually had ambitions to break with France entirely is somewhat immaterial. He would definitely have had cause to believe that such an action would be the best way to preserve liberty, equality, and fraternity in Saint-Domingue. Santanax, having been in metropolitan France since 1794, was very tuned into the political scene, and what he saw there concerned him greatly. Since the overthrow of Maximilien Robespierre and the Jacobins, the politics of the French Republic going increasingly in the direction of conservatism and reaction. The old Masayak club, once thought to be defunct, was rearing its head once again. A number of property owners and others with economic interests in Saint-Domingue were swept into power in the elections of May 1797, now once again having a platform from which to make their beliefs heard, and finding a receptive audience in the now royalist-dominated Council of 500, the exiled former plantation owners of Saint-Domingue once more took to the stand to agitate against the state of affairs in the colony. Their most vocal mouthpiece was a man named Vincent Marie Viennot de Valblanc. Valblanc was an aristocrat through and through, so much so to the point that he was an unabashed royalist and openly fraternized with such figures as the Comte d'Artois, future King Charles X, and the Comte de Provence, the future King Louis XVIII. He just barely escaped the reign of terror by going on the lamb for three years. He made his triumphant return to Paris in 1795, after the fall of Robespierre, and was elected to the Council of 500 as a royalist deputy. Valblanc became the leader of a new, unofficial political club of reactionary planters in the Council of 500. The unfortunate Santanax was the first victim of his vociferous attacks, but he soon turned his ire to the blacks of Saint-Domingue in general, and to Saint-Louverture in particular. Soon after his election, Valblanc gave a fiery speech, lamenting the state of affairs in Saint-Domingue, and exhorting his fellow deputies to take action to remedy the situation immediately. Quote, Saint-Domingue is in a shocking state of disorder, and under the control of a military government of ignorant and gross Negroes who are incapable of distinguishing liberty from unrestrained license. They have abandoned agriculture. Their cry is that the country belongs to them, and whites are no longer welcome there. The only solution is to force these Negroes to return to the plantations where they lived before the revolution. Once there, they should be required to sign multi-year contracts keeping them there. The excessives of emancipation must be reined in, and the population of ex-slaves must be coerced into serving as agricultural laborers once again. End quote. Of Toussaint, Valblanc and his compatriots decried him as a dangerous despot intent on taking full control of the colony for himself. In November of that year, Toussaint issued a rebuttal to his critics in the Council of the Five Hundred. In what is described by historian C.L.R. James as a, quote, masterpiece of prose excelled by no other writer of the Revolution, end quote, Toussaint expertly defended himself and his people from the slander leveled against them by Valblanc and the others. I believe this letter merits being read in full. Quote, the impolitic and incendiary discourse of Valblanc has not affected the blacks nearly so much as their certainty of the projects which the proprietors of Saint-Domingue are planning. Insidious declarations should not have the effect in the eyes of wise legislators, who have decreed liberty for all nations. 
But the attempts on that liberty which the colonists propose are all the more to be feared, because it is with the veil of patriotism that they veil their detestable plans. We know that they seek to impose some of them on you by illusory and specious promises, in order to see renewed in this country its former scenes of horror. Already, perfidious emissaries have stepped in among us to ferment the destructive leaven prepared by the hands of liberticides, but they will not succeed. I swear it by all that liberty holds most sacred. My attachment to France, my knowledge of the blacks, make it my duty to not leave you ignorant of either the crimes which they mediate or the oath that we renew, to bury ourselves under the ruins of a country revived by liberty, rather than to suffer the return of slavery. It is for you, citizen directors, to turn from over our heads the storm which the eternal enemies of liberty are preparing in the shades of silence. It is for you to enlighten the legislature. It is for you to prevent the enemies of the present system from spreading themselves on our unfortunate shores and sully it with new crimes. Do not allow our brothers, our friends, to be sacrificed to men who wish to reign over the ruins of the human species. But no, your wisdom will enable you to avoid the dangerous snares which our common enemies hold out for you. I send with you this letter, a declaration which will acquaint you with the unity that exists between the proprietors of Saint-Domingue, who are now in France, those in the United States, and those who serve under the English banner. You will see there a resolution, unequivocal and fully constructed, for the restoration of slavery. You will see there that their determination to succeed has led them to envelop themselves in the mantle of liberty in order to strike it more deadly blows. You will see that they are counting heavily on my complacency in lending myself to their perfidious views by my fear for my children. It is not astonishing that these men who sacrifice their country to their interests are unable to conceive of how many sacrifices a true love of country can support in a better father than they, since I unhesitatingly base the happiness of my children on that of my country, which they alone wish to destroy. I shall never hesitate between the safety of Saint-Domingue and my personal happiness, but I have nothing to fear. It is to the solicitude of the French government that I have confided in my children. I would tremble with horror if it was into the hands of the colonists that I had sent them as hostages. But even if it were so, let them know that in punishing them for the fidelity of their father, they would only add one decree more to their barbarism, without any hope of making me fail in my duty, blind as they are. They cannot see how this odious conduct on their part can become the signal of new disasters and irreparable misfortunes, that far from making them regain what in their eyes liberty has made them lose, do they expose themselves to a total ruin and the colony to its inevitable destruction? Do they think that men who have been able to enjoy the blessing of liberty will calmly see it snatched away? They supported their chains only so long as they did not know of any condition of life more happy than that of slavery. But today, when they have left it, if they had a thousand lives to give, they would sacrifice them all rather than to be forced into slavery again. But no, the same hand which has broken our chains will not enslave us anew. France will not revoke her principles. She will not withdraw from us the greatest of her benefits. She will protect us against our enemies. She will not permit her sublime morality to be perverted. Those principles which do her the most honor to be destroyed, her most beautiful achievement to be degraded, 
and her decree of 16 pluvios, which honors humanity to be revoked. But if to reestablish slavery in Saint-Domingue this was done, I declare to you that it would be to attempt the impossible. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. This, citizen directors, is the morale of the people of Saint-Domingue. Those are the principles they transmit to you by me. End quote. A few notable things stand out in this document. Firstly, Toussaint, at this juncture, remained completely loyal to the French Republic, in spite of the reactionary turn that characterized its politics during this period. Toussaint still clearly saw continuing allegiance to the Republic as the best way to preserve liberty that the former slaves of Saint-Domingue had won for themselves. Secondly, Toussaint's warning that the former slaves of Saint-Domingue would fight to the death to preserve their freedom was not mere hyperbole. It was a simple statement of fact, and it would turn out to be far more prophetic than even he had realized at the time. Thirdly, that Toussaint took on the voice of the father of the people of Saint-Domingue indicates how confident he was in his position. Indeed, at the time this letter was dictated in late 1797, Toussaint Louverture had become the single most powerful civil and military figure in northern Saint-Domingue. However, if he was to realize his goals, two obstacles still stood in his way. The continuing British occupation in the western province, and the rival Republican regime in the southern province, led by the free man of color, André Rigaud. The relationship between Toussaint and André Rigaud was complicated. Rigaud's regime in the south had been operating almost completely independent of metropolitan authority in the north. Having been suspected by Santanax of being involved in a plot to overthrow Governor Laveau in 1795, Santanax dispatched agents to the South to investigate Rigaud's regime. Their unscrupulous conduct led to a large-scale massacre of white inhabitants in Rigaud's capital of Lacay, an event which ultimately resulted in Rigaud officially claiming full authority over the South. Rigaud's regime was characterized by mulatto supremacy. Both whites and blacks were marginalized. While Rigaud had complied with the will of the Republic and abolished slavery in his territories, black plantation workers were subjected to conditions that eerily resembled those of slavery. And while the respective visions of Toussaint and Rigaud differed when it came to what kind of society Saint-Domingue should look like after the Revolution, the two men did not seem to harbor any ill feelings towards one another, at least not at this juncture. Toussaint was uninvolved in Santanax's botched investigation, and his deposition and deportation of Santanax put him in André Rigaud's good graces, and so Toussaint and Rigaud collaborated with one another to rid Saint-Domingue of their shared enemy, the British. The British had stood much to gain were they able to conquer Saint-Domingue. If they could restart the colony's economy, they had the potential to corner the global market on sugar, coffee, and indigo. They had arrived in Saint-Domingue in September 1793, expecting an easy victory. That they were greeted by the white and mixed-race property owners of the western province as liberators only compounded this belief. In truth, all that awaited them in Saint-Domingue was death. The British encountered many of the same problems that the French had faced in the earliest stage of the slave revolt. They were outmatched tactically and numerically, and, most importantly, disease decimated their ranks. The massive numbers of European troops that poured into the region continually between 1793 and 1798, fueled a massive epidemic of the dreaded yellow fever, a tropical disease to which unacclimatized Europeans had no immunity. Several factors exacerbated the effects of the epidemic. One British soldier who was lucky enough to survive the ordeal, 
reported the effects of the disease on the army in his journal, quote, In about three or four days after arrival, the troops began to feel in the most horrid manner the plague, for I can call it by no other name. It is impossible for words to express the horror that presented itself at this time. Thirty Negroes were constantly employed in digging graves and burying the unhappy wretches that perished, and scarcely could they work the whole day, from sunrise to sunset, again dig enough holes for the dead, although five were tumbled into the same grave together. In short, the putridity of the disorder at last rose to such a height that hundreds almost were absolutely drowned in their own blood, bursting from them at every pore. Many died raving mad. On a muster of our regiment made the 20th of March, 1797, not one year since we left England, we could not produce 200 men. The regiment was 700 strong when we left Portsmouth, and we have lost only seven men in action, the remainder having fallen as a sacrifice to the climate. End quote. Thanks to these factors, as well as the tenacity of the men fighting under Toussaint and Rigaud, the British invasion quickly stalled out, after having only managed to secure the western province and a few strategic points in the north. Nevertheless, British leadership was determined to wrest Saint-Domingue away from the French, and so they continued to pour both money and men into the ill-fated expedition. According to historian David Gegas, the total expenses of the British expedition came out to around 30 million pounds, equivalent to the market value of all British trade in the Caribbean for an entire year. Historians vary rather wildly as to how many British soldiers were sent to Saint-Domingue, and as to how many perished there. Historian C.L.R. James goes so far as to claim that 80,000 soldiers were sent to Saint-Domingue, and that over 40,000 of them died, mostly from yellow fever and other various tropical diseases. While these numbers do seem a bit too large to be true, more recent sources agree that at least 20,000 British soldiers were sent to Saint-Domingue, and also that they suffered a casualty rate of around 60%. British casualties reached such an abysmal rate that they were forced to resort to, against explicit orders to the contrary, arming local slaves, promising their freedom if they served with the British army for a certain amount of time. By mid-1797, after having suffered such catastrophic losses of manpower and capital, much of the British military leadership had come around to the idea of evacuating Saint-Domingue. One person who held the sentiment was General Thomas Maitland, who assumed command over British forces in Saint-Domingue in early 1798. At this time, Toussaint and Rigaud were preparing to make one last final push against the British. Toussaint focused on the city of Mirbalais, while Rigaud and his army attacked further to the south. Toussaint fought a spectacular campaign, winning seven victories in one week, one after another. As I mentioned earlier, the British were tactically outmatched by Toussaint's men, as they were not accustomed to their irregular style of combat. Ironically, in many of these battles between France and Britain, formerly enslaved black men fought against other formerly enslaved black men for causes that were not necessarily their own. During this time, however, many of the British's black auxiliaries clearly saw the direction in which things were headed and defected en masse to the Republican side. Also seeing the writing on the wall was British General Maitland, who opted to open negotiations with Toussaint. Maitland agreed to evacuate the western province of British troops, so long as Toussaint agreed to spare the lives and property of those plantation owners who had collaborated with the British. This is precisely what Toussaint was planning to do anyway, so he and Maitland concluded a provisional peace agreement on May 10, 1798. 
Crucially, however, their agreement did not stipulate that the British were to evacuate Saint-Domingue entirely, and so a British presence remained at the fortress of Molay-Saint-Nicolas in the north and the town of Jeremy in the south. As they entered the formerly British-occupied western province, Toussaint issued stern instructions to his men that they were not to engage in any burning or looting or enacting vengeance of any kind. Despite the fact that they were critically under-provisioned, Toussaint's soldiers did exactly as they were ordered, a fact that astounded white eyewitnesses. On May 25, 1798, Toussaint's forces made a triumphal entry into the former capital of the colony. Once called Port-au-Prince, the new French government had since rechristened it Port-Republicain. Toussaint and his men were hailed by the city's population as the saviors of Saint-Domingue. All the inhabitants of the city, black, white, and mixed race, lined the streets to welcome Toussaint and his army. Even the wealthy white plantation owners, Toussaint's former enemies, greeted him with cheers, applause, and gifts. They had erected a triumphal arch for him on the main road. The next morning, a Catholic mass was held in Toussaint's honor. After the mass had concluded, Toussaint gave a speech to those assembled. He claimed, quote, The age of fanaticism is over. The reign of law has succeeded to that of anarchy. End quote. After this speech, he had the inhabitants of the city swear an oath of loyalty to the French Republic. Were they to do this, all past crimes, collaboration with the British, taking up arms against the Republic, and so on, were all to be forgiven. It is around this time that Toussaint learned of a new arrival in Saint-Domingue, General Edouville. The metropolitan government in Paris was greatly concerned by Toussaint's expulsion of Commissioner Santanax, not because they were particularly fond of Santanax personally or his political agenda, but for the fact that Toussaint had just eliminated one of the last vestiges of metropolitan authority in Saint-Domingue. They sought to reassert metropolitan control over the colony, which necessarily involved wresting away power from Toussaint and Burgot. This would be quite the difficult task. Both men were savvy political operators, who had thus far managed to resist previous such attempts by the government. They were far too popular with their respective constituencies for any overt action to be taken against them, and their military prowess and the armies under their command were still needed to fight off the British threat. Needless to say, this was a very sensitive matter that required someone with a deft hand. The man for the job was General Gabriel-Marie-Theodore-Joseph Comte d'Edouville. In spite of his noble background, General Edouville had first won fame for his role in pacifying the Vendée, a region in western France where a powerful counter-revolutionary movement had risen up. This time, Edouville was put in quite the unenviable position. The Directory knew that sending the general, with a complement of soldiers from the Metropole, would doubtless be seen as a provocation. So Edouville had come to Saint-Domingue in early 1798, with only a few loyal officers at his side. He would have to rely solely on diplomatic wiles in order to accomplish his mission. Wary of the reception that he might have received had he landed at Le Cap or Le Quay, Edouville made his landing at Santo Domingo, capital of the Spanish side of the island, which had technically been ceded to France in 1795. Edouville immediately got to work collecting intel on Toussaint and Burgot. In a conversation with General Curverseau, Edouville was encouraged to work closely with Toussaint, quote, the forces that you lack, you will find them in a close partnership with General Toussaint Louverture. He is a man of good sense, whose attachment to France cannot be doubted, whose religion guarantees morality, whose firmness equals his prudence, who enjoys the confidence of men of all colors, and who, on his own, has an ascendancy which nothing can counterbalance. With him you can do all, without him you can do nothing." End quote. 
It would seem that Edouville did not take Curvaceau's advice into account. Instead of collaborating with Toussaint, Edouville sought to play Rigaud and Toussaint against each other. To this end, he made overtures to Rigaud, but Rigaud, for his part, was just as distrustful of metropolitan authority as Toussaint. Not because he suspected that they might reinstate slavery, but because Rigaud, for his actions in defiance of Santanax, was a wanted man by the Republic. Seeing as how, by this point, the metropolitan government was far more fearful of the ambitions of Toussaint rather than those of Rigaud, Edouville had been authorized to either arrest or pardon Rigaud, depending on which course of action would help him advance his goals. He reached out to Rigaud, offering him a full pardon in exchange for his help in sidelining Toussaint. Instead of writing Edouville back, Rigaud sent word to Toussaint, asking him to form a united front against the general. Toussaint tentatively agreed. When Toussaint was informed of Edouville's arrival, he was wrapping up preliminary negotiations with the British. Toussaint had to cut things short, and he immediately rode to Le Cap to meet with the Republic's new representative in Saint-Domingue. Their first meeting was cordial enough, but throughout, there was an underlying tension based on mutual suspicion. From the very beginning, Toussaint and Edouville did not trust one another. Although a coup on September 4, 1797, had ended the monarchist majority in France's legislature, and sent most royalist deputies, including Valblanc, into exile, Toussaint was not yet aware of this fact, and so, the fact that Edouville was ostensibly acting on behalf of Valblanc and his compatriots made him weary of his intentions. As for Edouville, his perception of Toussaint was colored by the prejudices of Valblanc and the others, and so he saw Toussaint as a power-hungry tyrant who was not to be trusted. The junior officers who accompanied Edouville on his mission did not even attempt to hide their true beliefs. They openly repeated counter-revolutionary slogans, and joked with one another that, quote, with four brave men, we could easily arrest the monkey with the handkerchief on his head, end quote. Toussaint had left negotiations with the British unfinished in order to meet with Edouville. The British decided to take advantage of this state of affairs, and made one last, desperate push against Rigaud's position in the South. As soon as Toussaint heard of this, he hurried southwards to Port Republican to meet with Rigaud and coordinate the defense. Thanks to their combined efforts, the British were beaten back and forced once again to the negotiating table. Edouville took it as a slight to his authority that Maitland opted to reopen negotiations with Toussaint rather than himself. He wrote angrily to Toussaint, demanding to take part in the negotiations himself, but Toussaint ignored him. Edouville relented and eventually authorized Toussaint to negotiate with the British, but it was later revealed that Edouville had gone behind Toussaint's back and was secretly corresponding with General Maitland, hoping to broker a deal of his own before Toussaint could manage to do so himself. When Toussaint caught word of this, he became understandably irate with the conduct of Edouville and the metropolitan government he represented. Why did they send this white man, with no prior experience in the colonies, to order him around? Had he not proved loyal and competent enough in his administration of Saint-Domingue to warrant the trust of the metropolitan government? In July 1798, after having concluded negotiations with the British, Toussaint decided to return to Le Cap to report back to General Edouville, but this time he brought a distinguished guest along with him, André Rigaud. Although the two men had been allies since 1794, and Toussaint had been Rigaud's superior since the departure of Governor Laveau in 1796, the two men, despite being in constant correspondence with one another, had never met in person until this point. At this time, these were the two most powerful men in Saint-Domingue, but as of yet there was no animosity between them. 
Upon meeting for the first time, Rigaud addressed Toussaint with the requisite deference that was due to one's superior, and Toussaint referred to Rigaud as his old ally. Both were dimly aware of Edouville's plan to turn them against one another, and so, during the carriage ride from Port Republican to Le Cap, they agreed to form a united front against Edouville, to exercise caution in their individual dealings with him, and to report back to the other any useful information from their conversations with him. However, this alliance quickly fell apart. During the ensuing meetings with Toussaint and Rigaud, Edouville treated Toussaint coldly and passive-aggressively. During one conversation between the two men and the captain of the ship that had ferried Edouville to Saint-Domingue, the captain stated that it would be an honor for him to take Toussaint back to France aboard his vessel, so that he could enjoy his retirement for all the heroic feats that he had performed for the Republic. Toussaint replied laconically, quote, your ship is not big enough for a man like me, end quote. While Edouville slighted Toussaint and condescended to him at every opportunity, he lavished high praises upon Mergot and privately reassured him that, in the event that he were to turn against Toussaint, he would not only receive a pardon from France, but also the full support of the metropolitan government. The idea had been planted in Mergot's head, and while he became noticeably more cold in his dealings with Toussaint, he dared not act on it. At least, not yet. The war that had ravaged Saint-Domingue since 1793 was finally over, but the worst of the colony's problems were yet to arise. Edouville saw the end of the war as reason to carry out his mission of reasserting metropolitan authority over the colony. There were three main groups of people that were at issue. The émigrés, the laborers, and the soldiers. To begin with, the émigrés. Toussaint's policy towards the big white planter class has been fairly well documented by this point. Toussaint recognized that, in order to restart the plantation economy, he required the expertise and the capital of the big whites. And so he was rather lenient, perhaps overly so, to these people. Even if they had betrayed the Republic to support or even fight for the British, Toussaint was willing to forgive, or rather to overlook, all past sins so long as they swore an oath of loyalty to the French Republic. Edouville's policy towards these people was more in line with that of the metropolitan government, which is to say that no mercy was to be meted out to those who had collaborated with the counter-revolutionary enemy. So, while Toussaint even went so far as to invite former property owners to return from exile in France, Jamaica, the United States, or wherever, Edouville accused him of treating with the enemies of the Republic. Where policy concerned plantation laborers, Toussaint and Edouville were more or less in agreement with one another. In a move eerily similar to something that Valblanc had suggested a year prior, Edouville mandated that all plantation laborers sign a three-year contract, binding them to the plantations where they worked. When Santanax had attempted something similar, mandating that laborers sign single-year contracts, he had been met with grumblings that the new system was proving to be just as coercive as the old. When word of Edouville's new, more extreme policy reached the plantations, some complained that they would rather live their entire life in the mountain as maroons rather than sign contracts that bound them to a single place for three years. Indeed, there was an uptick in labor strikes and marinage during this period. Some went so far as to burn the contracts in public. Finally, there was the army. Now that the war had concluded, there was no need to maintain a strong standing army as large as Toussaint's. Edouville sought to bring the army under his control and to drastically reduce its size a series of actions that naturally brought him into conflict with the large and powerful new class of black military officers. The prospect of demobilizing the army was a fraught one. 
the logical place for all these soldiers, who now had no enemy left to fight, was back to the plantations where they lived and worked before the slave revolt and the war had broken out. But years of experience in the army had not necessarily made the soldiers predisposed to agricultural work. Many of them looked down on plantation laborers, despite the fact that they themselves were in a similar position not too long ago. As one can imagine, the prospect of being demobilized caused dissent in the ranks of the army. Tensions between Toussaint and Edouville were at a fever pitch. At this juncture, all it would take was one inciting incident to drive the two men into open conflict with one another. This incident took place in July of 1798. Edouville suspected the men of Fort Liberté, just outside of Le Cap, of treasonous activity. The garrison there was under the command of a man named Moïse. Moïse had been by Toussaint's side since the very early days of the slave revolt. So close was the relationship between the two men that Toussaint actually adopted Moïse as his nephew. Moïse's connection with Toussaint made him one of the most popular commanders in the army. Edouville suspected Moïse of fomenting dissent at Fort Liberté, and so he sent a detachment of National Guards to relieve Moïse of his command. Tense words were exchanged, and eventually gunshots as well. One of Moïse's brothers was killed in the ensuing firefight, and another was captured. Moïse himself was lucky enough to escape with his life. He began to go from plantation to plantation, inciting the laborers there to rise up against the tyrannical rule of General Edouville. As soon as Toussaint received word that war was about to break out between General Edouville and Moïse, he immediately took the side of his adoptive nephew and dispatched a division under General Jean-Jacques Dessalines to arrest Edouville. Soon, soldiers and armed plantation laborers loyal to Toussaint and Moïse were surrounding Le Cap. Completely outnumbered, Edouville opted to flee. On October 23, 1798, General Edouville, his retinue, and some thousand other refugees quickly boarded ships in the harbor of Le Cap and sailed off back to France. Many of those who fled with Edouville, such as Julien Raymond and Jean-Baptiste Belly, shared Toussaint's commitment to maintaining liberty, equality, and fraternity in Saint-Domingue, but were growing increasingly worried by Toussaint's recent conduct, his authoritarian tendencies, his friendly dealings with the hated British, his leniency towards returning emigres, and his flouting of metropolitan authority. The following day, Toussaint made a public proclamation at Fort Liberté, wherein he had defended his actions. Quote, I have done what I ought to do. I have nothing to reproach myself with. I laugh at whatever Edouville says, and he can come back when he wants to. He has spread the word that he is going to France to seek forces and come back. I do not want to fight with France. I have saved this country for her up to the present, but if she comes to attack me, I shall defend myself. General Edouville does not know that in Jamaica, there are, in the mountains, blacks who have forced the English to make treaties with them. Well, I am black like them. I know how to make war. And besides, I have advantages that they didn't have. End quote. In direct response to a pronouncement issued by Edouville just before he fled, denouncing him as a traitor to the Republic and an enemy of liberty, Toussaint replied, quote, Who ought to love liberty more, Toussaint Louverture, the slave from Breda, or the Comte d'Edouville, former Marquis and Knight of St. Louis? End quote. As C.L.R. James wrote, the proverbial Rubicon had been crossed. This was a period of great uncertainty for Toussaint, let alone for the rest of Saint-Domingue. Toussaint had no idea how France would react to the overthrow of Edouville. It seems, however, that Toussaint had prepared for this eventuality. The reason he had insisted on managing the negotiations with the British was because he was trying to cut an under-the-table deal with them, 
without the knowledge or approval of the metropolitan government. Toussaint knew that, even though the French government would not respect his power, the British certainly did. The British could see the fault lines forming in the relationship between Toussaint and France, and authorized Maitland to offer him a deal. If Saint-Domingue were to declare itself independent, Great Britain would place the country under its protection. In exchange, Saint-Domingue would trade exclusively with the British Empire. However, Toussaint was not willing to take such a drastic action, at least not yet at this juncture. He made Maitland a counteroffer. He was willing, in fact eager, to trade with Britain in hopes of fostering economic growth in Saint-Domingue. But he did not trust Britain's motives enough to change his allegiance over to them. Instead, Toussaint made an oblique threat. He reminded Maitland that the British colony of Jamaica was not too far from Saint-Domingue, and he could easily send over a couple hundred of his men in canoes to foment a slave revolt there. The top priority for the British in the region was to contain the so-called contagion of liberty, and so they agreed to open trade relations with Saint-Domingue on the condition that Toussaint make no effort to foment slave insurrection anywhere else in the Caribbean. Toussaint had the opportunity to make good on his word the very next year. He had caught wind of a conspiracy by a smuggler named Saportas to enter Jamaica illegally to incite and arm a slave insurrection. He had asked Toussaint for his assistance in this effort, and Toussaint dutifully betrayed this conspiracy to the British authorities on the island. Saportas and his co-conspirators were arrested and executed by British authorities. During this time, Toussaint also conducted clandestine negotiations with the United States. In June 1798, the Congress of the United States, responding to attacks on American merchant ships by French privateers, passed a resolution suspending all commercial activities with France and all its dependencies, including Saint-Domingue, thus beginning what is known to history as the Quasi-War. This state of quasi-war between France and the United States had an immediate and devastating effect on Saint-Domingue's economy. In the past, American merchants had brought sugar, coffee, and other agricultural goods from Saint-Domingue in exchange for manufactured goods, including, crucially, weapons and ammunition. Toussaint realized that there was an urgent need to restart this trade, and so he wrote to President John Adams directly, expressing his hope that commercial relations might be re-established. Toussaint promised that American ships would be more than welcome in the ports of Saint-Domingue, and that he would protect them from the privateers. Soon enough, Congress found a loophole that would allow for the resumption of trade. Council General Edward Stevens traveled to Le Cap to negotiate final terms with Toussaint. Stevens, much like Maitland, attempted to bait Toussaint into declaring Saint-Domingue independent, but Toussaint still refused to take such a drastic action. For the time being, however, the Americans were merely content with re-establishing trade, and so they backed down from this request. The final British soldiers departed Saint-Domingue in late 1798. On December 12th, an article appeared in the London Gazette, celebrating the occasion. Quote, no event has happened in the history of the present war more to the interest of the cause of humanity, or to the permanent interests of Great Britain, than the treaty which General Maitland has concluded with the black general Toussaint, upon the evacuation of Saint-Domingue. By this treaty, the independence of the most valuable island is in fact recognized and will be secured against all the efforts which the French can now make to recover it, not merely without the expense to England of fortifications or armies, but with the benefit of securing to us its exclusive commerce. Toussaint Louverture is a Negro, and in the jargon of war he has been called a brigand, but according to all accounts he is a Negro born to vindicate the claims of his species, 
and to show that the character of men is independent of exterior color. It is a great point gained to the cause of humanity that a Negro domination is in fact constituted and organized in the West Indies under the command of a Negro chief or king, that the black race whom the Christian world to their infamy have accustomed to degrade. Every liberal Briton will feel proud that this country brought about this happy revolution. End quote. A fascinating document to be sure. The tone does not betray the fact that some 12,000 or more British soldiers had perished in an attempt to subjugate the very colony and re-enslave its people. Perhaps the author of the article had more ulterior motives, hoping that the directory would read the article, and thus putting yet another wedge between Toussaint and the directory, and driving Saint-Domingue closer into the arms of Britain. The truth of the matter was that, at this juncture, Toussaint still had no ambition to declare independence. Although he was negotiating foreign policy for Saint-Domingue completely independent of the authority of the metropolitan government, and his secret deal with the British, with whom France was still at war, was tantamount to treason, he still publicly retained his allegiance to the French Republic. His vision of Saint-Domingue at this point was one of a more or less autonomous colony within the French colonial empire, one where Saint-Domingue had the right of free trade, political autonomy, and control over its own economic policies. Ironically enough, this vision lines up remarkably closely with the proposals of the Assembly of St. Mark, one of the colonial assemblies founded in the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution. There was one crucial difference, however. While the Assembly of St. Mark sought autonomy to preserve the institution of slavery, Toussaint now sought autonomy to keep the slaves free. Toussaint had dispatched his own agent to travel to France and explain his side of the story to the directory. He was betting on his man arriving in France before Aduville, but he did not. Aduville reported back to the directory thusly, quote, The export of sugar and coffee by the English and American boats will make money flow into the colony, and Toussaint will not fail to attribute this state of affairs to the wisdom of his government. I am no less convinced that sooner or later, this precious island will escape from French domination. I do not take it upon myself to propose the measure you will take to weaken those who dominate it, but if the moment is not yet ripe for vigorous measures, it will perhaps appear to you important to create germs of division between them, to embitter the hate which exists between the mulattoes and the blacks, and to oppose Rigaud to Toussaint. I do not see any way to guarantee the purity of the intentions of the first, but in justice to him, I can assure you that I have only praise for his conduct. You will have proof in his correspondence. If I had been able to count entirely upon him, I would not have hesitated to go to the South. End quote. Although there was no open hostility yet between Toussaint and Burgot, Aduville had used the last trick up his sleeve before departing Saint-Domingue to ensure that the two leaders would turn on one another eventually. He had written to Rigaud to release him from Toussaint's authority and to authorize him to take into his possession two contested districts that bordered Toussaint's administration. Even though there was no open hostility between the two men, Aduville's actions ensured that a deadly civil war would erupt in Saint-Domingue. His hope, and the hope of the Directory, was that the two belligerents would keep each other occupied for long enough until France could step in and intervene. And that is where I will leave things for now. Will Toussaint and Rigaud fall for the trap that has been set for them by Aduville? And if so, who would emerge victorious from the ensuing conflict? The stage has been set for yet another act of violence and political intrigue in Saint-Domingue, but you'll have to tune in again in two weeks' time to find out what happens next. In the meantime, if you have any comments, concerns, criticisms, etc., you can always email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. 
Or, alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the description of this episode. Also in this episode's description will be the link to the show's Patreon page, where, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I will be uploading bonus content at the cost of $5 a month. If you like the show, please consider supporting it financially. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.